Look, it's great to be here. Um, I wrote a book about this, but I have to rely on my notes to make sure that everything is sort of condensed and digestible. And um, that's why I'm going to leave these right here. So let's start off with basic principles. The book is called Reimagining Child Soldiers, and it sets out to do exactly what the title describes, namely to take a second look at law and policy as regards child soldiering. Starting off with some basics, as you know, uh, many youth worldwide are affected by militarization. Um, there are tens of thousands of children at present who are associated with armed forces or armed groups worldwide. There are many more uh, child soldiers that one would call former child soldiers. A former child soldier is an adult who is in armed forces or an armed group, but it started off as a child. And also a former child soldier is just that, a child soldier who has exited fighting forces. And as we'll talk about later on today, the vast majority of former child soldiers who exit do so on their own initiative. They're not rescued. They exit or they abandon the armed forces in question. So to date, the number of child soldiers has gradually declined, but the phenomenon persists. It ebbs and flows as conflict erupts and violence recedes. So now, for example, we're seeing, in some senses, a recrudescence of child soldiering in Mali, for example. There are child soldiers in Colombia, and it's a worldwide phenomenon. There's child soldiers in the UK, in Canada, in Australia, on every continent. And in this sense, we have to be very careful not to Africanize the phenomenon of child soldiering, but the standard definition of the child soldier is one that involves a person under the age of 18, who is associated with armed forces, namely national militaries or armed groups, often rebel forces that fight um, the state in which they're located. The ongoing definition of child soldiers that I turn to and utilize is that found in the 2007 Paris Principles. This is a non-binding document attached to a document called the Paris Commitments initially adopted by 58 states, and now there's well over 100, 105 or so, that have endorsed these particular principles. And they define the child soldier as anyone under the age of 18, and there's a great capaciousness with regards to the kinds of activities that fall within the category of child soldiering, and soldiering is only one of them. Being a combatant is only one of them. Most child soldiers, as the definition reflects, are porters, sentries, spies, cooks, cleaners, and sex slaves. So the ongoing definition of child soldiering that I use is that from the 2007 Paris Principles, where child soldiers are called children associated with armed forces or armed groups. Yes, it's a non-binding document, but yes, it has tremendous policy and operational value, and increasingly that definition and the Paris Principles themselves are being referred to and cited by hard law international judgments. And in the process of juridification, therefore, they are themselves coalescing and congealing into this magical substance that international lawyers like, namely hard international law. The definition of child soldiers is also deeply influenced by what is commonly known as the straight 18 um, advocacy position. What is a straight 18 advocacy position? It is this. 18 is the age of adulthood. 
18 is the minimum age at which youth should be lawfully recruited into fighting forces. 18 is the age at which it is a crime to recruit someone under the age of 18 into armed forces. And finally, 18 is the age at which a child who commits war crimes can only be found to be criminally responsible. So it's a categoric line that says, when is what's an adult, who can be recruited, when is recruitment illegal, and at what point does an illegally recruited child face consequences for his or her actions in conflict, and that answer is the age of 18. All right, so that's the straight 18 position. You see why it's called the straight 18 position. I'm gonna add one more caveat. The operative term today for child soldier is children associated with armed forces and armed groups. You are quickly going to see why I just use the word child soldier, okay? Because it's just easier to say. But I want to be very clear that I am up with the contemporary vernacular, all right? I've got it. It's just hard to say it, and I don't have that much time. So I'm not clueless or obsolete or old, okay? Just want to be clear about that, all right? Okay. So I'm going to take you on a journey, and the journey is that of the book, all right? And the journey starts off with an honest conversation about imagery. What do we think about when we think about child soldiers? When we close our eyes, what do we see? What are we instructed to see? The second step of this project I'm going to take you through is one in which I explore the actual realities of child soldiering and contrast that with the imagery. The third part of the remarks are going to focus on the way in which the image, not the reality, is pushing and shaping law and policy. In the fourth part, I'm going to talk about the disconnects, the externalities, the paradoxes, and the problems that have arisen in terms of the way in which law and policy on child soldiering are being pushed. And then finally, I will propose a, wouldn't say it's a solution, a new road, a new vision, and a new way to conceptualize this. And then, if there's time permitting, I want to connect our conversation about child soldiering with some much broader issues um, and much broader concerns, both in law, domestically, and internationally. So, images of child soldiering in public discourse are extreme, exotic, and essentialized. And there's four major images. First, is that what I call the faultless, passive victim. That is the child soldier as young, very young, prepubescent, barely able to carry weaponry, let alone keep his socks pulled up. It is of the child soldier as having no say in how he or she ended up in fighting forces, no input in what he or she does within fighting forces as auto automatons, robots, tools of war, and all forced to do whatever it is that they do. That's one image that's out there. Second image that's out there, the child soldier as damaged goods, child soldiers as part of a lost generation, psychologically devastated, spiritually eradicated, empty shells, lifeless, living dead. This image resonates more and more 
in internationalized juridical spaces. And one case in point are examples such as in the Lubanga judgment by the International Criminal Court, the Taylor judgment, where we actually see language being evoked about how former child soldiers are devastated for life by the fact they had experiences as child soldiers. That's the second image, damaged goods. It's quite allied with the faultless passive victim image, but it's a little bit different. The third image, the child soldier as hero, fighting for justice, overcoming oppression, ousting horrible dictators, being courageous, throwing him or herself into martial activities. Joan of Arc, frontline township youth in South Africa, for example. The Intifada, many captured Palestinians in the Intifada at the age of 17, for example. This is the child soldier as hero. That image, it's a bit historical, it's a bit antiquated, but when you think of it, what was once the possibility of youth exercising martial pride has now slouched towards the reality or the perceived reality of youth engaged in fighting as embarrassments, as eyesores, and in many ways as a blight on our shared humanity. Finally, and most problematic, child soldier as a demon, the child soldier as a bad seed, as a bandit, imagery that resonates in the way in which many children who participate in terrorist activities are currently characterized. Omar Khadr being one example, but just one of many. This is the child soldier in a Lord of the Flies sense, unable to be corralled by law and bent on atavistically killing for killing's sake. Each of these images are raw, and excessively um, reductionist in focus. Among the images, though, there's one that's the most influential, and that's the faultless passive victim image. It is influential, it's broadly circulated, it's aired, and it's released, why? It helps galvanize funding, and it mobilizes public attention to the plight of the child soldier, and thereby to the phenomenon of child soldiering. It suffuses the international legal imagination. And in this process, it pulls and it pushes law and policy in a broad number of directions. However, I find the image is incomplete. It occludes and it distorts. It may be well-intended, and it may be right some of the time, but it's not right all of the time, and that gap really matters. And I think we need to pay specific attention to that particular gap. We have rushed to imagery and imagined judgment. There is too much celerity here, and I think we need to pause. So if we pause, let's ask ourselves, in addition to the problematic nature of the imagery, what else we can learn by pausing? Let's move to the second part of the book. And the second part of the book is deeply epistemological in content. And it seeks to ask itself this question. From where do we know what we know about child soldiering? And a review of the literature and the influences of literature suggests there are two disciplines that are particularly influential in shaping and molding the perceived knowledge base of child soldiering. The first is child psychology, 
and the second is what I clumsily call human rights reporting, child psychology. This is a discipline that often focuses on very young children, views harm as trauma, propounds medicalized recovery through psychotherapy. This discipline has been very influential in conceptualizing the harm soldiering inflicts upon youth and telescoping that harm and mainstreaming it such that those that information becomes assumed knowledge. Secondly, human rights reporting. This is the reality of human rights activists, advocates, going in the field, obtaining information, obtaining it for the purposes of drafting and issuing advocacy positions, reports, documents, activist statements. In many cases, these reports are tremendously courageously drafted in terms of the obtention of information. But they are sloppily redacted. Why? Because information obtained as data that contradicts, dissents from, departs from, or questions the normative goal of the advocate becomes parsed, purged, redlined. At the end of the day, we see very often in these reports statements by child soldiers that say certain things that depart from the orthodoxy of the advocacy position, and then those statements are immediately discounted. We see the report saying when the child soldier said that he or she learned stuff by soldiering, they don't really know what learning means. When the child soldier says that he or she signed up voluntarily, they have no idea what volunteerism means in this particular context because they lack the capacity to volunteer in this particular context. So there's a curious paternalism and massaging to the data that underpins a lot of these human rights reports. Again, it's well intended, but for the purposes of transparency, the data is massaged. Moreover, we also see similar blurring between data gathering and activism now at the International Criminal Court, for example, between activism and experting. The experts, for example, in many cases brought forward in the Lubanga trial that testified as objective experts were child rights activists. And at the end of the day, the experting becomes also massaged when done by advocates woven to a particular position. And the Lubanga judgment is replete with this in terms of both the language of the judgment, what ended up happening in terms of the situation of certain child soldiers, and even the obtention of information, which was done through activist, um, activist intermediaries. So, are these two disciplines, with their benefits and their faults, the only sources of information on child soldiering? The answer is no. And I believe the only way to truly stop child soldiering is to consider honestly what a large number of disciplines have to say about child soldiering. So, what else is out there? Well, there's a lot of emic participant observation data. There is a lot of ethnographic and anthropological work. There's a lot of work undertaken by feminist theorists in conflict zones. There is a lot of survey data conducted by impartial organizations as opposed to advocacy organizations. And there is a wealth of emerging information not on child psychology, 
but on adolescent developmental neurobiology and adolescent developmental neuroscience. What do we learn from these disciplines? We learn a much more complex picture. We learn that there is no typical child soldier. We learn that child soldiering is not so simple. We learn that the oppressed, even in the most invidious of situations, often have agency and some level of discretion. We learn, for example, that the archetype of the child soldier as the young boy is inaccurate, as about 40% of child soldiers worldwide are girls. We also learn some more specific information. First, most child soldiers are not young children. Most child soldiers worldwide, and I don't mean 51%, I mean like two-thirds or more, are adolescents, the ages of 15, 16, and 17. We secondarily learn that most child soldiers, roughly two-thirds, exercise some initiative in joining fighting forces and in exiting fighting forces. Contrary to what may be generally thought, a diminutive percentage of child soldiers are rescued by humanitarians. The vast majority abandon, leave, or exit on their own volition. We also learn thereby that youth volunteerism is radically under-theorized in conversations about child soldiering. I believe that the amount of initiative that young people exercise is variable. In some cases, it's virtually nil. It's just one step removed from coercion. But in many cases, the initiative is much greater, much broader, much more reflective, and much more decisional than the faultless passive victim imagery communicates to the public. And I don't think we can stop child soldiering until we recognize that. Child soldiers in the ethnographic literature are often portrayed as social navigators, scaling tough situations and making the best out of truly, at times, pernicious circumstances. We can't wish away youth volunteerism because it's repugnant to us, and we can't wish away the reality that sometimes people choose to soldier, and those choices are not pre-logical. They're actually kind of sensible in certain situations. So, when we think of faultless passive victimhood, we think of its correlate, namely all child soldiers are abducted, coerced, forced to serve. It's not true. Roughly two-thirds exercise some initiative. I'm not saying that abduction doesn't exist. I'm not saying it's brutal. I'm not saying many child soldiers are tortured. What I am saying is you can't generalize from the most extreme cases and have that voice and situation speak for all. Thirdly, on a more upbeat note, very few child soldiers participate in committing serial acts of atrocity. Child soldiers are less tools of death and killing than they are cooks, spies, sentries, servants, and sex slaves. I think it's very important to emphasize that. Fourthly, child soldiers demonstrate considerable resistance, refusal, and often subvert orders they consider are cruel or unappealing to them. They're not robots. There is plenty of ethnographic evidence, even from the most, you know, the most malevolent situations, for example, the RUF in Sierra Leone, 
of child soldiers exercising discretion not to kill, to free a captive, to let someone go, to even be kind, and so forth. On the other hand, there are some child soldiers who zealously torture, kill, way beyond what they're ordered to do, or way beyond what others do, so that they can rise within militarized hierarchies, so that they can appropriate more power within, within political frameworks of organized death. We need to recognize that. You can subvert through mercy, you can subvert authority and be more cruel. Once again, we need to recognize this residual discretion. And finally, and also more upbeat, the mental health of former child soldiers is simply not as fragile, vulnerable, or devastated as faultless passive victimhood intimates. There is a strain of psychological evidence, dissident, but extremely, I think, well done, that suggests that child soldiers are more characterized by resilience and suppleness in the face of great emotional strain than by devastation, implosion, and uh, complete incapacity. I think it's very important to recognize that because not only does it paint a more optimistic future image, it also suggests that the needs of former child soldiers are much more than simply more westernized, medicalized psychotherapy. Bottom line is this. The international legal imagination generalizes the most extreme examples and normalizes those. But we can't do that because of the inherent complexity of the phenomenon. And I argue in favor of an approach that is granular, not generic of an approach that's variegated, is less tendentious and more accepting of the complexity, less focused on sound bites and more focused on the hard work of developing truly effective remedial, deterrent, and ameliorative practices. Unfortunately, international law and policy are not doing what I suggest. And in fact, post-dating the publication of the book in the spring or overlapping with it, written on this in a number of fora, we actually see faultless passive victimhood narration becoming worked even harder, those tools becoming honed even sharper and deployed even faster, to the extent that, for example, the virology of the Coney 2012 video that simply demonstrates this exact same narrative and projects it. You have a reality of the most extreme cases increasingly speaking for all and speaking more loudly for all. The realities, though, are much more complicated. Thirdly, we can critique the image, we can find it's and, and if we can find it's inaccurate, but it's not a case of a tree falling in a forest that no one hears. The image has strongly affected the contents of law and policy. How? First. It is embedded, normalized, and mainstreamed categorical and chronological understandings of age, as opposed to liminal, experiential, and individuated conceptions of coming of age. 18 is a bright line, and as I'll talk to you later on, the bright line is both under-inclusive and over-inclusive at the same time. Secondly, the faultless passive victimhood image has created a normative framework in which former child soldiers have their responsibility over acts of violence 
entirely evacuated and displaced upon the shoulders of others. Former child soldiers are routinely told it's not your fault, regardless of what activities that former child soldier engaged in. The accountability of former child soldiers has become deeply emaciated and weakened in many contexts, and I argue later on that this is not necessarily a positive gain. Moreover, the focus of this faultless passive victimhood model also has broader repercussions on the ability of people who have been hurt by the activities of former child soldiers to have any sense of justice claims. Thirdly, because the responsibility of former child soldiers is evacuated, it's not evaporated, it's evacuated, and it is placed on the shoulders of adults, in particular adult recruiters. And the faultless passive victimhood image pushes forward a, a policy in which criminal trials for adult recruiters are viewed as a mechanism to obtain justice for the tragedy of child soldiering. It sounds great. It is perhaps something we should think twice about, not in terms of having those trials, but about how having those trials diverts attention from other things that we ought to be doing in order to secure justice for the recruitment of child soldiers. Fourth, what faultless passive victimhood has done, it has created a situation where no legal relevance is attached whatsoever to how the former child soldier entered armed forces. Volunteerism is an impossibility, hence enlistment of volunteers is viewed as the legal equivalent of abduction of conscripts. At the end of the day, abduction is equivalent to volunteerism. There can be no consent as a defense. That's not necessarily a bad thing. But on the ground and in reality, abduction is not the same as volunteerism but the law treats this in this particular sense. Fifth, we have emerging an imputed moral equivalency among all child soldiers. It doesn't matter what the child soldier did during conflict, the child soldier is still a child soldier. The six-year-old boy, the 14-year-old girl sex slave, the 17-year-old commander of the small boys unit, all three are members of the protected class entitled to equal benefits, entitlements, and protection. I argue that a more individualized approach would not only be more reflective of how communities perceive former child soldiers, but would also allow the development of more specifically tailored reintegrative and rehabilitative policies to help each of those particular child soldiers in the way they individually need it the most. Fortunately, in the Lubanga case, on the judgment on policies um, with regards to, uh, and principles with regards to reparations, an approach was taken in which reparative entitlement was not limited only to the category of former child soldiers, but to communities at large, which is good, because a traditional practice, traditional in the sense of the early years of international law regarding child soldiering, focused on giving entitlements to former child soldiers, not to the communities at large, which meant that a civilian child tortured by a child soldier got nothing, and the child soldier then got something. You don't need to go to Oxford to know that that's not gonna play all that well in communities, and it's one step removed from perceptions of blood money. 
last, and I think the most distressing. The emphasis on faultless passive victimhood in the framework of criminally prosecuting recruiters has led to the following situation. The repetition, the reiteration, the pounding of themes of incapacity, devastation, vulnerability, loss of innocence, in which former child soldiers at, for example, international tribunals are depicted in the most vulnerable way possible so that the conviction and the sentence on the illegal recruiter can be as clear and heavy and onerous as possible. The more decimated the former child soldier, the more grave the crime, and hence the more onerous the sentence. It makes sense if you're a prosecutor. But imagine the repercussions on the former child soldier. Let me read you some snippets from, for example, the Lubanga judgment and the Taylor judgment. Child soldiers have had their innocence stolen, their lives permanently marred by their experiences, little skills to handle life, devastated by long-term consequences of child soldiering. There are intergenerational effects that persist for life and, of course, for the lives of the children of child soldiers. Again, I see how it's helpful to convict. But imagine a scenario where you hear this, and in many ways you can construct this language as simply another gerontocratic use of the experience of child soldiers to satisfy, in this case, the goals of securing criminal convictions. And I reject the notion that former child soldiers see themselves so sullenly, so dispiritedly, so haplessly, and so hopelessly. And I think it's very problematic to characterize this extreme language in this sense because you're simply left with the following paradox. Namely, if child soldiering is terminal in its effects, then why bother investing money in rehabilitating former child soldiers, for example? Extreme rhetoric can have extreme effects. And I think we need to be very, very careful of that. This language suggests that former child soldiers have no hope of getting better. You don't need to go to Oxford to know that the worst thing someone can lose is the hope of recovery. Yet, this is essential, it seems, to getting these criminal convictions. All right. The faultless passive victim image may be well-intended, but it also leads to externalities. Let me go through some of these. I've got about six or seven of them. How does the image, as it affects and molds law and legal practice, fall short? The first way in which it falls short, I argue, of great interest to you folks, is the extent to which it hems in and emaciates transitional justice opportunities and the involvement of youth in transitional justice in post-conflict situations. So look, the United Nations position is that no child soldier should be prosecuted for international crimes at international courts, in national courts, or in military commissions. That's the position. It's a human rights, rights abuse to be a child soldier. If the child soldier himself commits human rights abuses, there's no penal responsibility for international crimes in that context. I agree with that position. I think it's sensible. But I agree with it as a concurrence. Why? 
because as I've published elsewhere, I'm very skeptical of the value of criminal trials for offenders outside of the most top leadership in terms of delivering the retributive, deterrent, and expressive goals of criminal trials. That's my concern. My concern doesn't have anything to do with the faultless passive victimhood of former child soldiers. I would extend the same argument to the 20-year-old, the 30-year-old, the 50-year-old, the 60-year-old lower-level participant. Now, let me be clear. My major concern is not that child soldiers are not brought to trial. I support they're not being brought to trial. But the United Nations position has overshot its mark. In ensuring that former child soldiers are not prosecuted, that position, as inflated through the balloon of faultless passive victimhood, has pushed the discussion of child soldiers as actors outside of the framework of truth commissions, outside of the framework of restorative justice initiatives, outside of the framework of traditional reintegrative justice mechanisms. In other words, the conceptualization of former child soldiers only as victims and witnesses, never as actors or perpetrators, has completely eliminated meaningful assessment in a restorative sense of the actions, conduct, and responsibility of former child soldiers in situations of conflict. So child soldiers at TRCs in Sierra Leone, Liberia, are portrayed as victims and witnesses only, not as perpetrators. I argue that this is problematic for two reasons. One, it is simply facile to expect reintegration based entirely on excuse born out of chronology as opposed to some form of forgiveness born out of conversation or discourse. And plenty of survey data from former conflict zones suggests that there are two groups of child soldiers that are poorly served by the dominant framework. The first of these groups is child soldiers believed to have been implicated in particularly violent armed factions or believed to be implicated in the commission of acts of atrocity. And the second group are girl soldiers. In the case of the former group, there's a level of marginalization and ostracism towards former child soldiers known to have been implicated in acts of atrocity because many communities simply don't accept that they are innocent victims. And even if they are innocent victims, when an innocent victim rapes, tortures, amputates, and kills, it's not entirely self-evident that for the victims of that violence that there has to be some process to come to terms with it, some healing, some form of community repair. Girl soldiers face ostracism and marginalization as well for different reasons. And I argue that a justice process that unpacked the reality that many harms endured by girl soldiers were inflicted by boy soldiers, not only by adult commanders, but by boy soldiers, would not only reveal the more complex realities of violence in armed groups, but would also permit a greater differentiation of harm and also would, in my opinion, help um, alleviate some of the controversy and marginalization that former girl soldiers face. This, of course, is a tricky situation because many former girl soldiers 
don't want to be identified as former girl soldiers because of situations of social embarrassment in communities. And also because in many of these communities, the reality is that not all girl soldiers are victims of sexual violence either. Some girl soldiers are also perpetrate terrible acts of violence and serve as commanders and also go out of their way to commit acts of violence. Once again, I think a greater identification of girl soldiers who perpetrate, in my opinion, would add a layer of transparency that would facilitate the development of more informed reintegrative mechanisms for the vast majority of girl soldiers who are not perpetrators. Secondly, second major um, sort of shortfall in the ongoing situation is this. I believe there's simply too much focus on medicalized psychotherapy within the framework of post-conflict rehabilitative programming for former child soldiers. We need more physical and occupational therapy, more education, more social and um, skills-based training, and we need more conflict resolution when conflict of today often links back to the big conflict in which child soldiers may have participated. Thirdly, there are very problematic asymmetries that have emerged. And this is what I mean by that. Situations in which former child soldiers find themselves are often affected by the nationality of the people hurt by the activities of former child soldiers. Child soldiers in the periphery that are involved in violence against members of the periphery are viewed as purposeless, deluded youth. Child soldiers from the periphery who target people living in the center of global politics, notably terrorists, for example, are not perceived as deluded or purposeless. They're perceived as purposeful and menacing. And of course, the Omar Khadr example is, I think, the most salient talking point, so to speak, for this situation. When people in the center are affected by youth violence, the youth are not characterized as purposeless. When it's other people's problems, purposelessness reigns. To me, that's a very problematic asymmetry. That's a double standard. And I think that it's something we need to be very forthright about. Fourth, because of the focus on the bright line, the law comes down very hard on the 18, 19, 20, and 21-year-old. There is no excuse for war crimes perpetrated by the 18, 19, 20, or 21-year-old. That individual is fully open to prosecution for international crimes. Yet, plenty of neuroscientific evidence suggests that the brain continues to develop well past the age of 18. And in other words, the bright line of 18 is indulgent towards those under that age bracket, but excessively exigent and punitive towards those right over that bracket, even, those, even though those who are right over have much more in common with those right under than one would otherwise believe. Moreover, this bright line emphasizes the uniqueness of the suffering of youth and thereby diverts attention from the reality that adults too suffer terribly in times of conflict and also may suffer from the soldiering experience. Moreover, there's also a strain of, um, of work 
that suggests that in some instances, adults are less resilient after having endured traumatic experiences than youth necessarily are. Once again, the focus on the fragility of youth to the purported resilience of adulthood obscures the reality that not all adults are resilient and some youth are resilient. Also, adult soldiers experience major reintegrative hurdles. The criminalization of conscription of everyone under the age of 18 legalizes the conscription of anyone over the age of 18. And for those of you who may have concerns about the state's ability to conscript into armed forces, let's recall this. All the focus on the 17-year-old obviates and draws attention away from the main question at hand, namely, should the state be able to forcibly conscript anyone, including a 19 or 20-year-old? International humanitarian law permits what it doesn't prohibit. And in that sense, international humanitarian law is a double-edged sword. What it doesn't prohibit is permitted regardless of the effectiveness of the killing machine, the amount of harms, or the amount of suffering. International humanitarian law legalizes as much violence as it prohibits. Let's be clear on that. Fifth, I simply argue that it's far too easy a solution to punish a handful of adults this diverts from a conversation about structural forces, small arms trade, economic variables, local leaders, the passive acquiescence of foreign states, all of which conspire together to ensure that child soldiering tragically continues to exist. It's just easy to put Lubanga in the dock, prosecute him and say, hey, we have justice for child soldiering in the DRC. It's just not an accurate reflection of what justice means. And finally, on this note, juveniles, I believe, because of the faultless passive victimhood imagery, have a tendency to become viewed as enfeebled rights holders post-conflict. If young people can have no say in why they join fighting forces, can bear no responsibility for what they do within fighting forces, then it becomes difficult to say that young people should have autonomy in choices regarding reproductive rights refusal to have medical care, to be taken seriously, for example, in um, political conversations, to have rights of expression, assembly, and so forth. Rights without responsibilities are flimsy. Excessive protectionism can suffocate. It can be well-intended, but often we see in situations where former child soldiers are released into the public told, it's not your fault, the very same gerontocratic ordinal hierarchies and ordering continue after conflict as they had existed before conflict. Emboldening a culture of juvenile rights, I believe, means having conversations about juvenile responsibilities within the framework of restorative justice processes. So, Two more big aspects I want to talk about, but mercifully they're short. We'll be done in about two or three minutes. First, what's the way forward? I argue that we should abandon the legal fiction of faultless passive victimhood and instead approach child soldiers as um, circumscribed actors, as individuals on a spectrum of action 
They occupy different spaces on the spectrum depending on the context, but we should approach them with an implicit understanding of action as opposed to incapacity. I believe this would do justice to the evolving capacities of young people as recognized by the CRC for Convention on the Rights of the Child and the optional protocol and would ameliorate rehabilitative, reintegrative, and restorative modalities for former child soldiers. Would also contribute to the etiology of child soldiering and permit us to more effectively deter a practice because effective deterrence is rooted in accurate understanding, not myth-making. So, I also believe that we have to take account of two major risks that my proposal would effect. And these are risks that I have called from presentations I've made about this to a lot of audiences. And maybe you can come up with additional risks by distill them to two. So I've heard the following two major critiques of this proposal. The first is fiscal slash pragmatic. The second is based in fear. First, fiscal pragmatic. Transitional justice operates on a shoestring. We can barely do any justice whatsoever in post-conflict situations already. Now you're coming here and telling us that we have to have individuated restorative justice processes for former child soldiers. Are you really serious? Is this that important? Can we afford to do it? Maybe you're right, that's great in the ivory tower of the university, that's never gonna happen on the ground. Moreover, it just shouldn't happen because it really doesn't matter. My response to that, it does matter. It matters tremendously to communities that have suffered harms by child soldiers, and it matters tremendously to communities whose children have been kidnapped or volunteered for service and themselves became scarred by the violence. It matters, it doesn't have to be expensive. The youth in these communities are the future, and I think if we're gonna truly have an honest conversation of who does what in genocide or crimes against humanity, and who needs to repair from that, we can't exclude an entire group of people because they're too young. That to me is redolent of the same gerontocracy that abused those particular children in the first place. They matter and should matter. Secondly, fear. What's this argument? This argument is as follows. Faultless passive victimhood is insulation. It's a buffer. It may be clumsy and awkward, excessively inflated, at times embarrassing, use strange rhetoric and language. But it's a shield. It stops the following from happening. Former child soldiers being beaten up by authorities. Former child soldiers being prosecuted in sham trials for their conduct. Inflicted with corporal punishment, executed, imprisoned in anonymity with no hope of excuse. It serves as a buffer from further abusing these victims who victimize and these victimizers who are themselves victims. My response to that is perhaps, but it has problematic externalities that it occasions as a detail to you, and I believe we can do better. We don't have to negotiate policy out of fear. I have faith that communities are going to be able to develop intelligent and creative policies for former child soldiers, and we can rely on other gatekeeping mechanisms than faultless passive victimhood. So, last, what are the implications of this project for people 
I think the arguments in this book can help improve, re-energize, and revitalize conversations about restorative justice for youth who commit ordinary crimes in ordinary times in ordinary penal systems. Second, I believe the conversations generated by this book can help us approach victims of other international crimes, I'm sorry, of transnational crimes that are not yet international crimes, drug trafficking, sex trafficking, dangerous child labor. Approach victims of that with a more informed and mature perspective that neither infantilizes nor embarrasses them. And thirdly, I believe this project ultimately can help us build a better understanding and etiology of atrocity. How? Let's look at this. Today, international criminal law views the adult who commits war crimes as doing so because of disposition, free will, mens rea, and so forth. All the blame goes to disposition and the individual, and when you stand up and say, hey, adults do this in context of collective violence, adults do this because of ecological, situational, and structural factors as well, international lawyers get nervous. My first book was entirely based on the premise that we have to understand the situational and ecological variables in which people as individuals perpetrate atrocity in order to really grasp the phenomenon. When it comes to minors, international criminal law lurches quickly and abruptly to the exact opposite end of the spectrum. It focuses entirely on ecology, situation, context, and structure. Youth have no volition, no disposition, no input, no agency. I believe that the true reality of the role of the person, regardless of age, in, situ in group violence is one of a balance and admixture between disposition and situation. And moving forward from this particular project, I think we can approach international criminal law in a way that recognizes this complexity and devel develops a broader array of transitional justice responses to it. 45 minutes. Thanks, Mark.